Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Hybrid Unlimited. This is me, Steffi Cohen. And Hayden Bo. And today we have the privilege of talking to Brian McKenzie. Brian McKenzie is an author of the book or co-author of the book Unplugged, as well as the author of Power, Speed and Endurance. He is also the founder of the Human Performance Foundation, which focuses on doing research on breathwork and how that can improve the lives of people as well as athletes. Today we cover on this episode Uh, what he's currently working on with breath work and the mind, uh, how to be more mindful of technology use. We cover that uh, for a short period of time talking about his book Unplugged. Uh, but we mainly focus on concurrent training that is for both endurance athletes and anaerobic athletes or strength athletes. So how can endurance athletes utilize strength training and breath work to improve their performance? And how can strength athletes utilize breathwork and endurance training to maximize their performance. That's what we focus on the most. We give you a very practical approach to figure out whether this is something that you need to be paying attention to. Brian describes a very in-depth uh, process or test so that you can figure out what your CO2 tolerance is. And he gives you uh, practical suggestions to start working on that today. He also gives a ton of free resources mm -hmm. on his site. He's also going to give uh, us a code um, for hybrid users that we will, or hybrid listeners, hybrid unlimited listeners that we're going to put in the show notes. So use the code, get free access to this. And uh, let's try to all be a little bit less of knuckle dragging mouth breathers and get ourselves into that parasympathetic state. As always, this podcast is brought to you by Go Strong Equipment. You can check them out at gostrongequipment.com <laughs> or on Instagram at ghost strong we don't need to tell you these guys are the best they have our full endorsement they filled our whole gym with the best equipment so check out our instagram check out our website if you want to see what that stuff looks like uh and and definitely uh go buy some stuff remember to tag us at hybrid unlimited at hayden dapo at steffi cohen uh screenshotting this episode for a chance to be selected for to win free swag from hybrid apparel Yeah, we'll give you the whole drop if you're chosen. We choose multiple people every month, so make sure you don't miss out on that. Yep. All right, sit back, relax, enjoy the podcast. Awesome. Brian, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We really appreciate your time. How you been? Good. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Pleasure. So I first heard of you and of what you do through uh, Ben Pakulski's mentorship course. Uh, that was the first time that I was exposed to actually any, any sort of like breath work training. I, that's something that I guess I'd never, I'd never thought of. I'd never paid attention to, uh, and found it really fascinating, especially for, you know, I deal with anxiety, panic attacks, and you touched on the importance of breath work and improving your CO2 tolerance for the purpose of getting into a more parasympathetic state and, being able to deal with anxiety, stress, panic disorder, panic attacks better. So that was initially yeah. what kind of like really interested me of what you do. And then we had a, a short, a brief conversation yesterday about now, since I'm getting more into boxing, getting you to help me with my conditioning and, and really paying attention to, to my, to my breath and optimizing, being able to optimize my body to perform at the highest level. And that's exactly mm -hmm. what you do. Yeah. It's going to be yeah, interesting. It's, it's a weird place that we, that I stumbled into, but you know, it's not odd in the fact that somebody like Ben 
was already kind of involved in that because he's such a free thinker, such a clear thinker. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, he's been practicing this stuff for so, for so long. I mean, I mean, he's probably one of the only, or one of the first bodybuilding guys to actually start doing yoga, um, That's so interesting. which couldn't be better for you as a bodybuilder, but, um, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting because we don't tend to think of athletes, especially world-class ones is dealing with things like anxiety or panic attacks. And that's been that, that I, I wouldn't think like that because of my experience, because of what I've seen at the highest levels and how much gets out of control at that highest level mm-hmm. and, and what we're not looking at. And it just so happens that it's, uh, you know, physiology doesn't lie. Um, but the mind can, <laughs> What, what do you think is contributing to athletes dealing with these types of problems? Or do you, would you uh, say that maybe it, ex- I mean, it's a loaded question. Yeah. You know, and, and I mean, to, from a philosophical point of view, I think it's the education of sport and how we've gone about it. Um, I'm not suggesting we remove winning as the variable. <laughs> Or a PR is very is like the idea, but if that is the for the forefront idea, that's no different than making money the number one goal of life, right? So by that I mean if my purpose is to make money, well then what's secondary to that? You know, and, and where do the values come in underneath that? So if winning becomes the, 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 the focal point, then everything I'm trying to do becomes winning. So when I step on the stage, regardless of what that stage is, I have to take on the thought of, well, if I don't win, I lose. That is sure. gnarly. I, and I remember that. Mm-hmm. Like I, 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 I competed for like 20 plus years sports. So I remember it vividly. Um, then it was like, you know, the uncoupling of that became like, okay, well, what, 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 it, what, how could we look at this a little bit differently? And that's where, you know, we started coming up with the idea that at, at the foundation of all training is the ability to make a better decision. Well, that still encompasses the ability to win because you're still getting stronger. You're still getting faster. That's what those are byproducts of is the ability to adapt and make a better decision at higher intensities or higher workloads or longer duration. Right. Mm-hmm. So when we talk, when I, when I teach within inside like the operator community or, you know, cops, people who are in high stress situations, tactical situations, we talk about this is like, look, you have to be able to control what you can control. And the funny thing is, is that, and this is the other part of the panic attacks and anxiety at this level is from a physiological perspective, it's, CO2 and tall, it's a CO2 oversensitivity. The human beings, every animal on this planet that uses oxygen is sensitive to carbon dioxide. You have to be, but it's a yin yang um, idea, not idea. It's a yin, it's yin yang in biology, meaning you can't have oxygen without carbon dioxide. You can't get the use of it. So that the whole idea becomes how do we, get the athlete to understand that. And it's, you know, all energy that we move, 90% of the energy we move is done through aerobic 
cellular respiration. Mm-hmm. And so the more efficient we are at that, the higher end anaerobic steps in. So if I go in and like, let's just say, you know, I'm beginning to use a gun, you know, like I, I'm a cop and just learning to use a gun and fire that weapon. It's going to be high sympathetic at first for me to use that weapon. The first few times I've ever touched a weapon. But as I get better and better at that, it's no longer sympathetic and I can think clearer. So I'm becoming more parasympathetic in that process. And it just so happens that there's ways to actually train for that, that we've missed that, you know, we're like at the foundation of some of the most important um, movement practices in the world, yoga and Tai Chi, both of them at the foundation have breath control. We just skip that human performance. Why? It sounds. I don't know. Yeah. I, 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 I don't think it's ego. I don't. Well, I mean, maybe a little bit of ego because it's like, look, if I open my mouth, I can get away with a lot of shit. Like, right. m- seriously, mechanically, I can like if I'm compressed and, you know, kyphotic and, and stuck in a position, I can still get move air in and out. I can get away with it. Right. It sucks if I got to use my nose. Right. Really, there's no there's no culture of people other than civilized that is defaulted into this process of mouth breathing. And I'm not suggesting that we have to just strictly nose breathe, but fact is, is most 90% of the stuff we're doing shouldn't involve nose breathing. Mm-hmm. And when we step outside that, that's where we start to see the holes with inside um, athletics or sport with athletes is we start to see these energy deficiencies, even though we don't think they're energy deficiencies as much because we're testing somebody like on a VO2 max, you know, stress test, right? And, you know, we see these curves and it's like, well, yeah, I've seen those curves and I can show you a different curve. We could redo that test and we'll use some protocols for breathing in order to go into that. And we'll show you a very different curve before they hit max out Mm -hmm. just by controlling somebody's breath. So we can retard the, um, the dependence towards more carbohydrate for use with glucose and glycogen. We can, we can, we can push that off a little bit longer, even though it's not bad. These aren't bad things. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's just, we get to a point to where when we're anaerobic, we're sympathetic. dominant. That's just what it is. Mm-hmm. And so getting ourselves to understand that, um, through, through breathing can actually change how the athlete really starts to manage not only training, but recovery and life in and of itself. Mm-hmm. And so it becomes a very different game because you, get control. This is the way we have control of our autonomic nervous system. Mm -hmm. And we just weren't aware of that. Like we're only influencing it by just going out and doing sprints, right. Or just picking up weight. We're just influencing what's happening. Yeah. Now, if we control the breathing, we are controlling what's going on energy wise. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, it definitely seems like one of those missing links in, in human performance and, elite training as well. You're right. Like I think that we, and as a, as an, as a high level athlete, I feel like most of my career I've just focused on working hard and haven't thought much about the recovery aspect or, or haven't been instructed in how to appropriately have a rest day or how to appropriately stimulate my parasympathetic nervous system so that I can really uh, recover from the week of training or the past few days of training. And I think that at the highest level, managing fatigue becomes more and more important 
You know, it's like anybody can work hard, but you know, how well can you recover from those, from those training sessions? How well can you manage fatigue during a, during a session or after a session? And, you know, it's just that one part of the equation that it just seems, like I said, to be missing. And I think a big part of it has to do with lack of structure. I think that's when someone like you or a program like yours comes in so handy because I can understand. And I think a lot of people understand the importance of you know, improving your cardiovascular health or, uh, you know, maybe, you know, getting better at CO2 tolerance, whatever. But if you don't have a system in place or a step-by-step process or somebody telling you, Hey, this is what you're going to do on Mondays this is what are you going to do on Thursday when you take your rest day? You know, I think that's the accessibility is, is I think what stops a lot of people well, that I think that's part of it. And I also in think structure. a lot of people who make it to the high level, they've been able to differentiate themselves and make it to a high level through obviously talent, but also through being able to work harder than everybody else. So you get there a certain way. And it's one of those situations where what got you from A to B may not be what gets you from B to C and to continue making those improvements. Mm-hmm. So when you have to bring in somebody like Brian, who who works on the kind of like the, the minutia of all the different kind of rabbit holes you can go down with, with performance. And I, do you think it's also, I know you, you mentioned, you don't think it's an ego thing, but do you think, um, that on some level, it's just that we have, you know, if you're not exposed to someone like yourself, we just have an overly simplistic view of what breathing is. It's like, okay, day one, I was born. I breathed, got that down next. Now we crawl. Now we walk. Now we run, you know, like it is that sort of just people are just yeah. forgetting to, to go back to that. Yeah, that, you know, I mean, well, one, I totally agree with you, uh, on your first statement, um, that, you know, we get to a certain point and all of a sudden you're like the best in the world. Well, why would I do something different? I can't tell you how many times I've run into that conversation. Sure. It's like, okay, <laughs> like I, I'm perfectly fine, but just so we're clear, physiology doesn't lie. All right. So, you know, I, I do think there's a little bit of ego involved in some of this stuff. There, there is, um, but it's a protective mechanism. That's how we grow. That's what, that's what we do. That's how we grow up. Like we, you know, it's like, well, I, I'm not going to let somebody just come in and, you know, uh, take over something, right? Like I have to understand why. And, and so we have to actually give somebody something that creates an impact pretty quickly, especially at the pro level. If it doesn't, it's just not going to stick. It's just not going to do anything. And the problem with breath control at first with anybody is that it's going to, it's going to retard performance in training because we're actually exposing the leak where the real leak is. Mm -hmm. And, And so you have to be able to slow down and understand that if I can't manage this, control mechanism, let's just call it nasal breathing, right? Like if I'm having, like, let's just say Steffi went and did the 400 meter repeats again. I said, okay, you can do every one except the last two nose breathing and the last two, the last 200 meters, you can breathe out of your mouth, right? She's going to go much slower than what she did because she, we didn't even have a conversation yet, right? Like, but now we've had a conversation and she already did this workout And so she's going to look at that and go, well, I wasn't any faster. Why would I continue to do that? Well, if you give me three or four weeks, maybe you'll see something that you like. 
And we forget that adaptation is something that takes a very, it takes much longer than, than it really should. That what we've really grabbed onto. And I think in the, in the, in the exercise science and the human performance world, it's no different than anything else. We get caught in our systems. We get caught in our ideas and our methods and we don't want to be challenged. I mean, look, textbooks, educators, they don't want to change information. Like they really don't. They fight tooth and nail (laughs) to do this stuff. And it's like, well, isn't that the point? Like, isn't it supposed to evolve? Aren't we supposed to learn new stuff? Mm-hmm. You know, and and that's that's kind of what we're presenting and bringing to light is it's like, hey, like let's look at this a little differently because we're seeing very different results with people, and we're seeing physiology change. Mm-hmm. We're seeing big changes. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know what I saw for myself, you know, and I, I, I and and that's where it always usually that's where it always starts. With me. Let's talk. Let's um, talk a little bit about that. About you know the, <laughs> your life as an athlete, the endurance events that you've done. Like, how did yeah. you get into all of this? Yeah, I mean, I I got roped into endurance by a buddy of mine that I was literally doing. I was I was chasing this I was chasing this girl at the time, and she wanted me to do spin classes. So I was doing spinning <laughs> classes. This is like twenty something years ago, and um, you know. I was doing the spinning class, but I was a short course sprinter in swimming. And so I was, and I played water polo. So I was pretty skilled at some stuff, especially in the water. Um, and I went to spinning class and I got fit on the spinning bike. And so this guy wrote me into doing a triathlon. So I did my first triathlon. First triathlon I did, I got absolutely humbled. I came out of the water in the top 10, lost 50 places on the bike. And I think I lost another hundred or 200 places on the run. And it was a sprint triathlon. Right. And I had wow. never done that poorly in anything. And I was just like, I got to do better. And so I, I ended up signing up for a half Ironman, did that, did a full Ironman after that. And then I, uh, I read an article about these maniacs running hundred mile runs through the middle of the mountains in like 2005. Dude, I, I want to like, do that. I got to go do that. I got to go do that. I want to go do that. <laughs> and I'm not, a, I'm not an endurance. So I, I preface this with, I'm not an endurance. I'm a short course sprinter. Like I'm actually really good at power sports. Right. So like I used to cheat at swim practice. I would go <laughs> underwater, hold my breath and wait for people to come back. So that I, and then I was still the fastest guy. on the team, Right. <laughs> so, you know, I, was enamored with this idea of ultra running. So I did a 50 K did a fit, you know, did a number of 50 Ks, did a number of 50 milers qualified for Western States 100. And I ended up doing the Western States 100. And then I ended up doing another one, the Angeles crest 100. And then I was just burnt out on it all. I continued to try to do more of those things, but I was so burnt out from them. Um, Cause it takes a lot out of you. And it was just, I wasn't, being out there for that amount of time tore me up pretty good. Um, but the training, I mean, I was so fit. Like I was crazy fit. Like, you know, I, the longest runs I, I did for a hundred miler were, were a half marathon. I didn't, it wasn't like I was doing massive mileage. I was doing very limited mileage. So that was kind of my, my, my stick into, and I did that for about a decade or so with endurance sports and, and I, and I played with that and got my feet wet in it. But, you know, I mean, that was why I kind of gravitated towards it, but the missing link with all that stuff I saw was the lack of strength and conditioning. It was like literally 
endurance sports were the only sports not doing strength and conditioning. Why? Has that changed? Yeah, exponentially. What, what's a strength and conditioning program or approach look like now for an endurance athlete? Um, I, it would definitely, I mean, we, we were doing a lot of CrossFit with the stuff we were doing. Um, and, and, and although I, I love the concept and idea of CrossFit, I think it would be absolutely, we would look at this much differently from an energy standpoint and, and how we're managing that energy and using the gearing system. So we've developed uh, what's called a gear system with breathing. So gears one through five, five being mouth breathing, mouth, mouth, and gear one being nose, nose. And it just works from there and speeds and stuff. And so understanding how that works, I think that's how we would take the approach. There'd still be some lit, some heavy lifting, um, not exponentially, um, like engaging in a serious power lifting. Like we start, I started doing stuff like that in the, in the, in the, in the early days. And it would just leave us roasted. You know, we just couldn't move. You know, you just couldn't move when you had to go run or ride, you know. Um, and, uh, you know, so we'd probably tailor that down a little bit more. But there'd be a lot more movement uh, in terms of body weight movement. And, like, I think flow mobility stuff. Because that, that that's that's the biggest thing that I see within stuff, within programs. They're lacking a lot of that. And then connecting breathing to that. Like there is nothing actually easy about a real serious yoga program. And I'm not talking just getting people into yoga. I'm talking integrating the concepts and ideas of it. And like, hey, I'm moving into extension and I'm inhaling and filling up and finding where my limitations are mm -hmm. and, and really going, oh, I can't breathe when I'm back here, but I'm back here a lot doing things like this, you know, and it's like, I should be more open so that I, you know, and that's where breathing plays within mechanics is understanding mechanically what's going on. So we'd probably add a lot of that stuff. Um, but the approach, you know, from what we originally had was usually like short intervals once a week, long intervals once a week, and then there'd be a longer duration effort on the weekends. Um, and that would probably still hold true to a large degree, except there'd be control within how we were managing the energy through breathing. Interesting. So it replace, yeah, it replaced a lot of the heart rate stuff that people are, would normally think of, although we never, we rarely used any of that stuff. Uh, you, you mentioned, you say there was five gears and the top gear mm -hmm. is, is mouth, mouth. So inhaling through the mouth and exhaling through the mouth. What are, Correct. can you talk about what the other gears are? Yeah. Yeah. So gear one is fully aerobic. That's an equal in and out nasal only. And the reason we know that's fully aerobic is because an equal, we, we've actually looked at it under metabolic carts, but is an equal in and out or a longer out is more carbon dioxide inside the system. So that means there's more oxygen being used, offloaded to be used biologically. Gear two is still pretty aerobic, but it's a faster inhale. So the inhale is just like, and then gear three becomes more like, where I'm fast in, fast out, like deliberately fast in, fast out. And even though like work might pick up, 
I'm still very capable, like we're still very capable of managing a gear one at, you know, pretty high wattage work. If I'm concentrated enough on it, like one breath every four, three or four seconds versus like a, a real gear three is like, like that's one second of breathing in and out mm-hmm. gear four becomes nose in mouth out. And then gear five becomes mouth in mouth out. But if I know what gear, if I'm, conscious of the gearing that i'm using you have control that's what i find really fascinating is the the control because i've always thought of breathing as a byproduct of the level of activity that i'm doing so to like reframe it in a way where you can control how you're feeling based on how you decide to breathe is really an interesting thing yeah yeah Yeah, I, i certainly wouldn't tell an athlete performing in an a priority event control all of your breathing. We would hope that the training had had its effect and impact. So they instantly defaulted to that. But the idea of breath control in training is so that in real life, it defaults to a pattern that the athlete or the individual finds more efficient. Mm -hmm. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. So, and, and look, you're not necessarily wrong, but it's like, I mean, look, if I stand up out of this chair, parts of my legs and hips have become anaerobic cellularly because there wasn't enough oxygen in the environment. I mean, the first bar that you pick up, you know, if you're deadlifting, it doesn't matter if it's light or not, there's anaerobic occurring in that. Well, if I'm nose breathing, you just said that's not, well, no, <laughs> it takes a little bit of time. If you keep going up and down, the system starts to regulate ventilation picks up, right? So more oxygen now gets introduced and then I actually start to regulate it through the breathing. So within a few breaths, that's where the changes start to occur. And so that's where it's like, Hey, if I'm saying Steffi, yeah, sure. Go do this, but you can only be nose breathing within a few breaths. She is controlling that environment. If she steps out of that and lets it go, then we know she's become anaerobic. We know she couldn't maintain and stay aerobic. Dude, I'm anaerobic at all times then. You're anaerobic walking up the stairs. The thing is, is, well, I mean, (laughs) yeah. And and here's the thing is that, and and, and we, we alluded to this earlier. We are a very flexible species. We can go through brick walls for very long periods of time until we hit that brick wall one day and something goes wrong, whether it's an endurance athlete, a power, a power lifter, it doesn't matter. An MMA athlete that day comes if we're not managing things correctly. And you know, it just turned, it just so turns out that you can get away with a number of years metabolically with being high sympathetic mm-hmm. until things start to become, you know, the tissue doesn't recover as much. And my tissue is night and day from what it was six years ago, seven years ago. It's completely different. It used to be tighter, stiffer, right? And now it's way more supple. It responds quickly to like, you know, the sauce just had, like I went in pretty lit up and I came out like Play-Doh. So can, can we actually talk a little bit more about how this style or this type of training, training your breathing, 
can benefit somebody like a, a powerlifter or somebody who's considered uh, an anaerobic athlete? Yeah, very much. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, it, it, like consider the fact that there has to be some sort of minor conditioning involved with what we're doing. You can't just go squat and that's it. Right. And, and obviously that's not what you guys do, but a lot of people I have seen, that's what they do. Yeah. Most people. So getting into things, we'll just use like a sled push as, as an analogy, right? Like go push a sled for 50 meters or 25 meters, right. And back and forth and back and forth, shut your mouth and do that. There you go. And just suck it up or start if it's that's even difficult go for a walk and shut your mouth do not let your mouth open for 15 20 minutes once that progresses you can then take it into like hypoxic holds right like so you could hold on a negative try and get as many steps as you can and then give yourself five to ten breaths breathing through your nose in between those and then pick it right back up and repeat that for five to ten minutes that is actually aerobic training. You are stimulating higher aerobic output by not having to necessarily work harder, but by control restricting your breathing more. Mm-hmm. Right. So then what we do is then engage it into the training. So we can add in some minor conditioning stuff to where it's like, Hey, keep your mouth shut while we're doing this. Let's get some work done. Don't worry about the heavy stuff right now. Then when we start to get to heavier loads, okay, you can open your damn mouth, but here's the deal. Once you're done, once the set's over, sit down and shut your mouth and suck it up until you can actually breathe. And if it's really bad, gear down. Five, four, three, two, one, and stay at one. We'll use things like a five- well, like I use a gear five for like five breaths, then a gear four for like seven breaths, and then strictly gear one after that. Mm-hmm. So that you get an offload, you can get the individual to feel better, right? But then there's still, you know, you've stimulated the system, you've stimulated the tissue. So this the demand, the, you know, the, the, the demand for oxygen is still up, mm-hmm. but now you're controlling. And so that CO2 that's offloading still is getting restricted and you're still like, you're dealing with higher energy output to, but you're suppressing your ability to flip the switch and overbreathe. And what's that going to do for them? That, that'll increase the recovery. That'll increase the tissue ability to respond faster. That'll re- in- increase everything across the boards. If you're lifting heavy, there's nothing you can do about that. That is absolutely anaerobic work. Mm-hmm. You can't like, there's no if and but about that. There's just not enough oxygen that's being supplied for the system to use that cellularly. So what happens afterwards? It's Lifting is actually supposed to be an aerobic sport, mm-hmm. legitimately. It's just the fact that it's this explosive lift and we've, got, we've gotten so big, so we're carrying so much tissue that the metabolic demand for that tissue is up. So there's a lot, not only is there more oxygen demand, there's more carbon dioxide that comes off as a result of that. So think of it as like the global global warming concept, carbon dioxide going up, right? Same thing so within the human body. There's a- Hold on, hold on. I want to say something. You know what I just realized? 
That is so what? interesting. So when you were first doing uh, aerobic, <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> when you were first doing aerobic training, and then you started lifting weights, you were seen as like a crazy person, you know, because it was yes. so like, yeah, I guess polarizing at the time because aerobic yeah. sports or aerobic athletes were just supposed to be running, and you know, yeah, rather into the spectrum in people's mind. Exactly, but you know what? Nowadays, I think lifters are experiencing the same thing on the on the opposite end it's like concurrent training for a powerlifter for a powerlifter or a strength athlete is like a big no-no like people are very resistant to doing anything else outside of lifting weights or you know high specificity movements for their sport yeah and that actually leads in well to what i was going to say which was that i mean i don't know how familiar you are with with our uh our listener base but i bet you there's a good portion of our powerlifting lifter or listeners who just learned right now that you can actually breathe with your nose, <laughs> you know? So I think some of these recommendations are oh, actually yeah. going to be, yeah. you know, I mean, look, I was at a powerlifting competition. This weekend, <laughs> so I, like, I'm not, <laughs> I have been around this stuff for quite some time. Um, and you know, it's not the bedrock of health. No, <laughs> no certainly not, up, you know, and, but nor is a marathon just so we are clear. Oh yeah. yeah. Of you course. know, like, and, and, you know, the interesting thing is, is that it's like most marathoners think they're pretty aerobic. They're not. <laughs> they're actually using way more of this. Anaerob- like I was doing this. I was complicit in this, you know, until I was like, whoa, wait a second. We got to start testing this. We got to start looking at this legitimately. Then started testing. And it was like night and day what we were seeing metabolically happen. And it's just through that simple control that we can actually create a change that what this is what we believe real health is about is actually increasing that CO2 tolerance to make oxygen more available in the system systems wide, regardless of what your sport or what your life is like, mm-hmm. because that's what we're seeing, especially with all of health, you know? Yeah. It's people who are very CO2 intolerant. I don't think breathing's the answer though, just so we're clear. It's just a tool. Mm-hmm. And it's a tool to kind of help regulate energy, not kind of, but it helps regulate the energy. Mm-hmm. So how are we using our energy? And if I'm walking around, you know, like you go look at a football game and how many guys are on the sideline sucking on O2 concentrators. I mean, yeah. I've seen this at powerlifting competitions all the time. Mm-hmm. Right? strong man. They're on O2 concentrators. They don't need oxygen. They have a CO2 problem. So the oxygen is just making them feel better. They, they think it's, you know, it's making them feel better. It's like a Versus placebo. actually dealing with the, the problem of I'm actually so CO2 intolerant that I need to actually supplement oxygen into the system. So what's, sorry, go ahead. So for, uh, like even just me being honest with myself going for a 20 minute walk and, and not breathing through my mouth at all. I could see that being challenging for me. Um, and the type of people that powerlifting attracts, I would say are not the most patient. Um, you know, if, if I give somebody a cue, you know, technique wise, and they don't immediately feel 10 times better, they're half the time they're going to toss that cue out the window. So how do you think as coaches, you know, once we have this knowledge and we want to share it with, with athletes, how can we create buy-in in something that you said could take maybe weeks to, you know, to see a result that they would understand 
or be able to recognize. That actually ties into what I wanted to ask you, Brian. So I wanted you to, to tell our listeners what that, so, because this is what opened my eyes to how poorly in shape I was. Uh, I did with Ben, I did the CO2 tolerance test. Oh, that is so painful. It's so bad. And I was just (laughs) so terrible at it. So what's, what was it? What's a, what's a, like a home test that people can do just to like, see where they're at with their CO2 tolerance. That's simple. Like, Go sit down for a few minutes or lay down and just calmly breathe. Don't do anything else. Then get a timer and you're going to take a full inhale. As soon as you hit the top of your inhale, you're going to start your timer. Then you exhale as slow as you possibly can on that one breath. So instead of just letting the exhale out, you control it. And you trickle it out, but you can't stop. You have to control it. So the, and this, here's why you can't stop. This tells us how much diaphragmatic control you actually have. That is very important for a power lifter, especially if you've got a bar on your back or you're pulling a bar off the ground. Okay. Your diaphragm not actually engaging correctly tells me your spine doesn't organize correctly. It's the most important muscle we have because it's what's bringing in life, right? So it has to be organized in order for it to work optimally. It doesn't mean it's not working, right? So it's a, it's a constant trickling out of air. The timer stops when you either run out of air or you need to breathe. That time tells you exactly where you're at within the range. And there's there's a link on shiftadapt.com, okay? Um, And we'll create a link for you guys, for for your listeners, so they can actually, like, this is free what I'm going over right now, but we'll give you access to the back end, the membership side, to where there's a ton of information on all this stuff and how to integrate it. But if you go on shiftadapt.com and click on breath work, Scroll down to the breath calculator. You can input your score in there and it'll give you set. You can choose seven different breathing protocols to do, but it also lists in the scoring where like novice, intermediate and advanced CO2 tolerance tests are. You ideally want greater than one minute on that test. Wow. That does not. Now, hold on. I did not start there. So I like, look, be full, full disclosure. I did not. I was well below that. When I first started doing this. Okay. I, the changes that happened as a result of me integrating this in one month were so massive that I was like, how did we miss all of this? Wow. So my, my CO2 tolerance test not only increased, but my performance and my ability to recover and how good I felt, including sleep changed. So if we can even get, if we could get people to just do, let's just say 20 minutes of breathing as a standalone throughout the day, sporadically five minutes, four times a day, that is almost, that is basically the equivalent of four hours of sleep. Well, and if and, you sit there and do slow, controlled breathing and just lay down and chill the fuck out, that <laughs> li- like literally, this is there's there's research on on neuronidra and this kind of meditative breath practice that people do, and 
20 minutes is the equivalent of four hours of sleep. So that in and of itself could change how somebody functions. You're, you have no choice. You're going to get a hold of your nervous system. Okay. So the protocols that we have on there, there's seven of them, right? The idea is, is to go through each one for probably five to 10 cycles of it before you go to another one to feel which one makes you feel the best, right? Like this one calms me down the one, the most, or this one makes me feel pretty alert, but calm. Um, if you have a CO2 tolerance test that's below 30 seconds, the suggestion is, is you just use the very first cadence number with the very first protocol, which is called cadence 1A. That is nothing more than an equal inhale, equal exhale through the nose. Just follow that and try and stay on the rhythm that it's suggesting. If that gets easy, you can bump that up. So let's say it was a five second inhale, five second exhale. Follow that for 10 rounds. See what that does. That was super fucking easy. I need to move on. All right. All right. Go to six. That was easy. All right. Go to eight. Right. Like bump it up. And that's you want to hit a place where you're just scratching the surface of thinking you might need an extra breath, but you don't. OK, that's building in that CO2 tolerance, but it's also regulating the nervous system. This is how we have direct access to the nervous system. This is how we can grab a hold of it. And so that in and of itself changes how an athlete recovers, whether they like it or not. So if I go and have a lifting session, go do some fucking breathing immediately afterwards for five minutes, three to five minutes, just to bring yourself down. And you'll have instantly changed your recovery process due to the fact that you're not sitting there going and you're still sympathetic dominant. The moment that mouth opens, you are sympathetic dominant. That's me all the time. You're, full time. Flight. you're just sympathetic tone, wow. right? You've got more of that. That's what we want to rid ourselves of from after training, right? But by and large, most of our training should actually be parasympathetic dominant if we're not engaged even in high, high, high output stuff, right? Like I, I it took me probably four years. Um, and I can now function at about 96% of max heart rate, nose only. And that, that took time, mm -hmm. right? But first month will be the biggest changes you'll ever see. I'm excited to try all that stuff out. Yeah, I mean, we definitely need it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yeah. I'm just thinking even even those just the examples you're using, like the five seconds in, five seconds out. I had you out. do it one time on the uh, elliptical, remember? And you hated it. Yeah, it was hard. Yeah. It was hard for me. Yeah. For sure. Yeah, so we don't want everything to be hard either. Like, especially after a workout, there's no need to make the breathing hard. It should be easy, but it should be re regulated to the nose. Right. Okay. I mean, so, hard in the sense yeah. that it's uncomfortable. Like I, 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 when, right. yeah. Like you feel that urge to take a breath so hard. Yeah. You're, are you yes. talking specifically there, about the CO2 test? No, the CO2 too. training. There, there, there's ways that we can, and we'll, uh, we got, we're going to work together. So I'm going to show you a lot of this stuff on how to manipulate some things in order to get some intended results, you know? 
Um, that's the cool thing about breathing is it's like, there's so many ways to literally tweak it, but the fa- fundamentally the, the foundation, this is what our problem is, is. We skip foundations a lot. The foundation of all breathing is really understanding the difference between nose and mouth and do a lot more of nose breathing. I, I can't tell you how many people that I've worked with who are lifelong athletes who are like mouth breathers who now aren't. And they're like, my sleep is insane. Like, I feel like I am so refreshed in the morning, whereas I never felt that way before. Um, their, their recovery is faster. All of these things have really changed. Their performance is in a place where they were at, is in a place that they've never thought it was going to be at. And yet they're not out there out of control. Mm-hmm. doing things and getting injured. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it it makes some big changes. It just takes a little bit of ego check for some time. For a, for a lifter or a person that focuses on strength or building muscle, how many times per week should they be aiming to, to do this kind of stuff? Whether it's like actual conditioning with mouth shot or uh, non mindfulness meditation style breathing. Well, I would say The breath, breath work itself, we usually, I usually start people off twice a day as a standalone morning and night. So we're regulating them in the morning and then at at night, two hours or less before bed, they don't have to do it in bed. They can do it two hours before that way. We're, we're, we know we're bringing them down. Right. Um, so from a breath practice standalone that's what we that's what i usually do from a conditioning perspective we typically have people do something every day whether it's 10 minutes or whether it's like an hour right it 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 just depends on the athlete and what we're doing right like i do workouts that are over an hour long where i'm focused on specific gearing interval work in there um that's more complex that's on the website You know, stuff like that is on the website, but I would say at least 10 minutes of some form of working CO2 tolerance work a day is optimal. If you can't do it every day, three days a week, 20 minutes or more. That's easy enough. Mm -hmm. Just go for a walk and shut your mouth to start. I think that's a great starting point, especially because... The, the whole 10 minute walk thing is kind of like it's been trendy. Re- really yeah popularized thanks, in, to Mark uh, Bell. thanks to Stan Efferding and Mark Bell. <laughs> it's been really popularized in the powerlifting space. People, after they eat, they go for a 10 minute walk yeah. now. So, which is a lot for them, which is a lot. Yeah. You'd be surprised how proud everyone is <laughs> of their 10 minute walks. But now that if you can just kill two birds with one stone and do that, that they're already doing, and then just shut your mouth while you're doing it. I think that's, that's an easy, uh, an easy habit to start building. Yeah. I mean, the, and the level up from that is just literally, if that gets easy, it's like, Hey, if you go for 10 minutes, but you know, every, every fifth breath, hold your breath on an exhale as long as you can and count your steps so that you can see the progress and see what happens and watch what happens as that number increases. Yeah. Don't I like go that. Over 10 minutes. Just do 10 minutes of that. Mm-hmm. You, you will be shocked I think as to what starts to happen once that number starts to increase, once your steps start to increase. Mm-hmm. What's interesting about this, you know, style of training as well is that there's 
no technology if so minimal technology involved you've written you co-wrote the book with uh, andy galpin unplugged i'm curious yes. i'm curious as to you know i guess it would be we won't have time to go in depth on on that book but how does that relate to your style of coaching for breathwork and and the fact that there's no technology involved yeah um i think technology has its place um I think it has its place at the professional level with coaches and doctors. Um, I have spent way too much money on tech, um, but that's to understand things. Technology is it, it all, all fitness technology is based off of our own biological and physiological responses that are innate. And when we get glued to looking at something like a heart rate, or calorie counter, we miss the idea of what it is we're actually doing. And we get glued to something that, that we, we just, we, we fall, we, we separate ourselves from what's going on internally. And so, you know, one of the, one of the things that was very big in the, you know, endurance world was heart rate training zones and them being, specific places where it, now this doesn't go across the boards, but a lot of people use them for energy, like thinking that I was in my fat burning zone. Mm -hmm. That is, that could not be further from the truth. And it changes so quickly throughout the day based on how much stress you're able to manage, whether that's psychologically or physiologically, if I've trained already, right? And so if a 140 heart rate is supposed to be this super aerobic zone, but I'm psychologically out of it, meaning I'm super stressed from life, all that stuff, I've suppressed my ability to tolerate carbon dioxide. We, that, that, like, we have triggers in the brain stem that are set up with chemoreceptors throughout the aortic and the carotid arteries for, for detecting carbon dioxide. When we get stressed emotionally, psychologically, we suppress our ability to tolerate. This is where things like anxiety and, and um, panic attacks start to arise, right? And so we all have in us what's called the suffocation alarm response. And that is the feeling of like claustrophobia or fear, right? And we've long thought that the amygdala is this fear center when in fact it's actually <laughs> a CO2 suppressor. And so when I'm cooked, I'm, I don't respond real well to CO2 and I overbreathe, even though like, I don't need to be doing that. It's just a relationship. It's a predictive relationship that I've created with the CO2, right? Mm -hmm. So that has a compounding effect of my physiology. So if at any moment, if I'm over breathing, I'm now not allowing for as much oxygen to be available for the cells to use and the mitochondria to use for aerobic metabolism, right? That doesn't mean it shuts it all off. It just means it's not as, we're not using as much of the aerobic side of stuff that we could be using, right? And so that, what that means is that if I'm cooked psychologically or emotionally and I have a 140 heart rate and all of a sudden I'm mouth breathing at a 140 heart rate, I can tell you right now 
you are not aerobic if you're mouth breathing at a 140 heart rate. Definitely mouth breathing. We we've walked dogs metabolic carts on (laughs) with a with mouth breathing and then with nose breathing. It's two entirely different energy systems. That's not doing work. Gotten on a bike, and I've done this with other athletes, where we put an athlete on a bike. We did this big, huge 30-minute piece where they would go five minutes at 200 watts nose breathing, five minutes mouth breathing, and we'd repeat that step by step. It's two entirely different energy systems that are being used, yet the heart rates changed very little. Wow. And so this is where it's like understanding what technology is there for. Heart rate's important in that it, insofar it, it's a intensity meter. That's it. But a free diver can burn upwards of 600 calories an hour holding their breath and coming up. A chess player can burn 6,000 calories a day playing a chess like tournament. Just sitting there playing chess, the brain uses that much fuel, right? Oh like, so we have a very skewed idea of what it means to use energy. A teacher but told me that. one way we control it. <laughs> I had a teacher tell me that when I was like in grade five or six and I was just like, Phew, I feel like any person. <laughs> yeah. No, that's crazy though. Yeah. That is insane. Again. Um, so, bre- so breathing becomes that thing to where it's like, look, if there's something going on physiologically or psychologically, guess what? Your breathing is going to tell me before you do. Mm-hmm. It will. And so if we can get people practicing, just a little bit of breath practice throughout their day. They then become aware of it in the moment. And they're like, Oh shit, my breathing. Like I just opened my mouth. Like I get this all the time. Like I just started becoming aware that I was opening my mouth. I didn't need to. Mm -hmm. And that's what's, that's what our point is. is What's necessary. Is Mm -hmm. it necessary to open your mouth? Mm -hmm. Then don't. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. But we can also use this as a variable to train things. Very, very, fine-tuned wise mm-hmm. that's interesting i think what what drives people to getting to buying uh devices for a performance is just maybe they work as like a like a tangible cue to as a reminder that they need to or they get excited about the, the gadget they have and they want to they, they're excited I, to use I it i think that well i think that's part of maybe the good that it does in the short term but i also think that people are always looking for that like silver bullet you know thing that's going to that they can purchase that's going to change their life instead of actually looking for ways to work to do yeah. it. So that's yeah. usually what I see the trend yeah. with the Fitbit or whatever. I mean, and we've gone through this stage ourselves where we, we got Fitbits I'm, and all of a sudden I'm guilty as you are. it was a competition. <laughs> We're like, what are your steps at at midday? And you know, if you're a, you're a thousand steps ahead of me, I'm like walking laps around the office just so we can beat her, you know, but that only lasts so long. You get bored of it and you move on to the next thing, unless you're, actually developing the, habit. the habits and the the behaviors that are gonna you know keep you going long term yeah absolutely yeah so then you have that other book power speed and agility is that what's called power speed endurance endurance yeah and that yeah, that was the first one damn what was that one about that was all the endurance training and how we actually incorporated strength and conditioning into endurance training i have to read that one yeah, that was what we did with, uh, that was basically the CrossFit endurance program. So there'd be some minor changes that would happen. Um, and then I would obviously 
integrate the breath control into all of that. And you were teaching those seminars, right? For CrossFit Endurance. Oh yeah. 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 I did that. For Are like you still? Nine, 10 years. Wow. No, but not yeah. anymore. What's that? Not anymore. No, no. I, I stopped working with CrossFit in February of 16, I think. Hmm. Yeah. Very cool. And then you moved into uh, Health and Human Performance Foundation. Yes. What's what's that about? We want we wanted to study this stuff. We want it, we want it looked at, and nobody was doing it. And you know, science is weird because it's like, it, you know, it's not it's not whatever. I think the out, outside world really thinks they don't understand like what grant work means and you know, getting grants and like, you've got to kind of cater to where the money's coming from in order to get certain research done. And we want to go and explore this stuff to learn about it, to scrutinize it, to like, you know, get stuff done. So we've, you know, we started a foundation. I had, uh, I had a, a lady who, um, she, she'd come to a seminar of ours and she was very interested in what we were doing. She has a PhD and statistical analysis and she's in research and she kept bugging me about we got to work together. I want to work together. I want to do something. Would you want to study like diabetes and, you know, breathing and how it could help. And I was like, I'd love to, but I just don't have the bandwidth for this stuff. And so we kept going back and forth and back and forth. And I was like, why don't we start a foundation? You run it. <laughs> and <laughs> We'll use my contacts and, and people to kind of, leverage to see if we can start some projects that we could really look at. And, and so we kind of went off the grassroots races. Uh, I think it's two years now, about two years. Wow. What, um, what ongoing study are you doing right now that you're excited about? Um, well, a lot of stuff got put on hold because of everything that's going on right now. So the university is all shut down all that. Um, but there's one that, was that we're, we're still waiting to hear back. I actually saw an email come in from a kid who did the thesis. He's one of Galpin's kids, but they sent it to IRB and um, he, he used the CO2 tolerance test to uh, predict state anxiety. And he found that it was a very good correlate for understanding state anxiety. Wow. And so I, I really, and this is with a health, this is with healthy athletic population. So this would be, that would be a big deal to kind of really go down. But we, I'd also like to start, we'd like to get something done on a, doing a bunch of different uh, metrics, including the CO2 tolerance test. There's another test called a bolt, bolt score, bolt test, which is done by Buteco method. Um, then there's a, a max breath hold um, and then a max exhale breath hold. I'd like to test all of those and see which one, is best at predicting everything. We think that the, we feel that the max exhale test, the CO2 tolerance test is what we call it, is the best because it's the free diving community actually uses that. That's what they use to set CO2 and O2 tables, how they build the ability to hold their breath for a really long time. And if you've ever been around anybody who's a free diver, you're going to meet some of the calmest, chillest people you've ever met and it's for good reason but that yeah. test not only as i went over 
does it tell us mechanically what's make, what might be going on, but it tells us physiologically how well you tolerate CO2 and psychologically. Wow. So it's giving us a three prong approach to that. Whereas, you know, the max hold, the max holds are not, there's no mechanical advantage there right? It's just holding your breath. So that's psychological, physiological. The bolt score is very subjective. It's just a guess as to when your first urge to breathe. So I I really want to understand like what, with people who have no idea about these tests, what is the easiest way to predict so that we can actually really integrate a real test into stuff. I love that. That's super interesting. What, um, if people want to try all this stuff out. You have an app, yes. right? I did. We're building one right now. Okay. I, they, we, we had one which they could go do and use. Um, but, and I still recommend it. It's called state breathing. It's on the app store. Um, but we, um, we got involved with, um, I don't know if I, should, I guess I could. <laughs> Adidas, Adidas approached us about a partnership in developing one for performance. So we wow. are in wow. the midst of developing something pretty high end. Congrats. That's know. awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So this will be something that I could just put in your hand and be like, here you go. <laughs> like go to, go to work. Wow. Um, yeah. And it, it, it's going to screen on many different levels for things. Um, but it'll be really cool, really easy to use. Um, but the easiest thing to do is use the state breathing for the breathing exercises if you want but the more comprehensive developmental stuff is on shift adapt and so if you go to shift adapt and you go to performance and you go sign up for our our uh, monthly membership and we'll create a code called hybrid shift okay that your users can use and it'll give them a month free so they can go in there and follow the daily breath work and look at the conditioning stuff and how we're integrating breath control into it. They'll see all of that. Then there's also all of our webinars, which go very, very deep into this stuff that all have practicals attached to them so that they actually engage in this stuff. Um, you know, like the neuro Nidra stuff that we, um, that we, ha- we did with, uh, Emily Hightower. She did, she runs that stuff. Um, she, there's a webinar on there, which is the, you know, 20 minutes of that stuff is four hours. It equates to four hours of sleep. It's because you, you hit brain waves mm-hmm. that you only hit in deep sleep and REM sleep, right? This is why like monks don't sleep very much and they're still healthy as shit because <laughs> they actually have a breath practice and meditation practice. And they actually are downshifted enough throughout the day to change that. And there's no reason why a powerlifter or a, an athlete can't do that as well. They can. And they should. And they should. Like, it'll change, the, it'll change their game. It's just they have to invest in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it'll, it helps everybody, man. We live in a world that's stressful. We're all sympathetic all of the time. Yes. So, yeah, go sign up. Yeah. What was it called? Shift. I'm so bad Shift with names. Yeah, the, 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 our our company's called Shift now, but Shift. The, the website shiftadapt. Shiftadapt.com. Cool. We'll put it all in Amazing. the. Amazing. Yeah, we'll put it in the description. I'll, I'll send you a, uh, a a message with everything on it. Perfect. Awesome. awesome. Okay. Any yeah. other closing thoughts for you? 
No, that's awesome. I, I think I know that I have a lot of work to do now. So <laughs> I'm going to go for a walk and try to keep <laughs> my mouth shut. Shut your mouth. Yeah. Just hold your breath. It'll make, <laughs> maybe make Steffi's life a little easier at the same time. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm looking forward to starting to uh, work with you too. I think it's yeah. going to be awesome. Give me that stuff sent over and then we'll get cranking. I will. Awesome. Awesome, Brian. Okay. Thank yeah. you so much. Yeah. And we'll thank talk you. soon. Appreciate it. Bye.